two, three, four. I turn and see my ex-boyfriend doing squats in a bus station as we wait for our ride to Puerto Escondido, Mexico. It's a good way to kill time, he said. Ugh. I rolled my eyes and was so ready to be rid of him. We had broken up a few days earlier, but our codependency for a year and a half wasn't ready to part us. We didn't understand that although we had a two-month trip planned out, we didn't have to do it together. But part of me was scared to do it alone. I had grown very reliant, needy for his assistance, even though most of the time it was him telling me that I had done or said something wrong. Even through the abuse, having another body near mine was comforting. The clock hand spun a full 360 degrees past our departure time. And then another full rotation. We sat in the thick air of the bus station. The fluorescent lights flickered above us, and the televisions played the same telenovela episode on repeat. The metal chairs seemed to be getting harder by the minute, and neither of our Spanish was good enough to ask a local or a driver. Even if I could figure out a way to string a sentence together, I would have no idea what was being said back to me. I would just stare hard and confused at them as they wasted their words on me. Around the first hour, I noticed that there was a girl about our age who looked like she was backpacking too. I go up to her, desperate for any form of communication other than my ex. I would have chatted up a goat if it could talk back. She was also starved for English. I quickly learned her name was Allison. She was from Seattle. She was shorter than me and had long brown dreads. My ex and I had actually met in Portland, so Allison and I reminisced over the rainy, cool afternoons of the Pacific Northwest as beads of sweat slid down our backs. And Allison was traveling alone. Ugh, I longed to be traveling solo, but I was too scared to take the plunge, which is crazy because I had traveled all on my own throughout Europe. This codependency was tethering me like a dog tied to a stick with a short radius. But I was glad to be traveling, even if it was with John. It had been beckoning me to come, like reading a smoke signal. I needed to follow it. Finally, our bus comes. It was a 14-hour ride to Puerto Escondido, but most of it would be overnight. John and I scrambled onto the bus, and we found two seats. I got the window seat. Allison sat in the seats ahead of us. We grab all the softer items from our bags to create a makeshift nest for the night and nod off. Hours later, the desert sun wakes me. We make a stop in a small town called Santa Maria around 10 a.m. John and I kind of stir and we start to bicker about what movie to watch on his laptop. We had about four hours to go before we get to the beach. John got his way with the movie. Ugh, I was so ready to be in the ocean where I could have the seawater wash the sweat and the smell of the bus off of me and scream underwater where no one could hear me. The road we took was windy and elevated and we could see the ocean from our seats. And then after about 20 minutes from leaving the station, the bus stops on a curve. 
Hmm. I thought. There must be traffic. It'll move in a minute, I think to myself, and continue watching the movie. Ten minutes pass, and my body keeps anticipating that lurch forward that refuses to come. Twenty minutes pass. A half an hour. The shutter of the bus turning off tells us it's time to look up. The bus is nearly empty. It's been close to an hour. Everyone has hopped off and taken a look at what the holdup was, even the driver. John and I go outside and feel the heat of the desert sun on our skin. Everyone on our bus is outside looking around. Cars are stockpiled ahead and behind us. What's going on? I asked Allison, whose Spanish was notably better than ours. She said that there was a protest a half a mile ahead of us that was blocking the road. There was no traffic coming from either direction. What? I thought. Once the locals caught wind of the circumstances, they grabbed all their belongings and started walking towards the protests to catch taxis on the other side. But we had four more hours of driving before we got to where we needed to be going and didn't know how to explain where we needed to be. The three of us go down to check out the protest with certain confidence that our bus wasn't going to be going anywhere because we were stranded. Today on the podcast, we pay homage to what gets us to our destination. We will talk to travelers who spend significant amounts of time flying, driving, and thumbing their way around the world. We will realize that getting from point A to point B isn't always a straight line. What toll does being on the move have on our body and sense of time? How do we navigate the emotional odyssey that happens while we're on the road? And what will we do just to get home? We will talk to globetrotters, van life lovers, and make a few pit stops along the way. Buckle up. It's going to be a long ride. I'm Adrienne Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. There's this misconception that travel is glamorous. And sure, I have those photos of me on top of Machu Picchu, which looks epic. But do you know what it took for me to get there? I took a six hour bus ride on a road that no vehicle should legally travel down. Then I walked for two hours to the town I was staying in, slept in a bed with a stranger, got up at 4 a.m., hiked up a mountain's edge to the entrance, made eye contact with an alpaca at the gates, and then hiked another hour to get to the top. I went through so much pain to stand over the ancient Incan city for 30 minutes. And I'm curious if there's a certain group of people who have a higher inclination towards travel. Like those of us who can eat the world's spiciest pepper and only shed a singular tear. 
I think that certain people are built for the roughness of the road. People who can live like a sea turtle with their homes on their backs as they carry on to the next location. We've all heard those stories of the people who quit their jobs and travel around the world. Some of us can keep going for decades and not feel like much time has gone by. But Gary Ardent isn't just another one of those wandering vagabonds with a camera. He is the person. When everyone else in his life was coupling up and having children, Gary decided to sell everything and spend 10 plus years of his life on the road. He spent more time on buses, planes, donkeys, boats, and bikes than most families do collectively. Together, we try to understand what that calling is, that need to be on the open road. Is there a traveler gene or a chemical imbalance in our brains? Or maybe it's a push from an invisible force, like a warm trade wind. I I was not a well-traveled person growing up. My family never went anywhere. I never saw salt water until I was 21 years old. So I, it's not like this is something that I grew up doing. My family, you know, we were, we're just a middle-class family. We'd take vacations occasionally, but it was usually just a car trip somewhere. And so this is all something that I kind of just had to hatch on my own. But then I came hatched this idea of traveling around the world. And when the idea came to me, it was in an instant And I knew I was going to do it. And then it was just a matter of executing. So I had to sell my house. I had to wrap up all the other odds and ends. And then on March 13th, 2007, I turned over the keys to my house. And that's when it all started. There wasn't a whole lot of questioning what I did or anything. The long-term part just sort of happened gradually. It's just like I just lost any notion that it was ever going to stop. Because I had nothing to do if I did stop traveling. I mean, what then? So I get a house and I'm just sitting there. So it was just like, oh, I'll go to this place. I'll go to this place. I'll go do this. And when I was in a place, I would tend to see it pretty extensively. Like I spent almost six months in Australia. And and then I went to Southeast Asia and I spent a bunch of time there. And then I went to the Middle East and then never a conscious decision to to do it really long term. It just sort of ended up that way. Gary was an object in motion and couldn't stop no matter what obstacles came in his way. I asked him to tell me one of the strangest times he was on the move. I was in Cambodia, and this was in 2008, and there was a new World Heritage Site that got listed right on the border with Thailand, Previere. It is an ancient temple complex, and it is located right on the border with Cambodia, meaning you walk down the steps of this temple, and at the bottom of the steps is Thailand. And... At the time, I've been told this has been radically changed, but at the time, almost all of the the visitors to this temple came via Thailand because the road on the Thai side of the border was paved and very nice, whereas on the Cambodian side, it was just nothing. It was just a dirt road. But after it got made a World Heritage Site, the government in Thailand, which was not a democratically elected government, sent some troops over to claim it, and then Cambodia fought back they started kind of a border conflict over it. So people started shooting each other. And I'm like, I want to go there. So my tuk-tuk driver's like, uh, okay, it's a long trip and it'll cost you. And so I'm like, that's fine. So my tuk-tuk driver, we wasn't, we wasn't a tuk-tuk, it was just a motorbike. But his dad is high up in the police force in Siem Reap. So before we left, his dad gave him a gun. 
and he put the gun under the seat of the motorbike, which is not a convenient place if you really need access to a gun because you got to stop and lift it up. So he comes to pick me up really early in the morning in Siem Reap. We drive all the way to the Thai border. It's like a seven-hour ride, and I'm on the back of his motorbike. Not a motorcycle, but like a motorbike. No padding in the back because it's not that big. It's like a, you know, like a dirt bike or something. And the roads are a lot of potholes and the back seat, my tailbone just keeps getting hit on the back of it. We get there, no problem. We get there like one or two in the afternoon, take some pictures, see everything. I, I was told that the day we were there, someone got killed by stepping on a landmine. And all the, the Cambodian soldiers that we were there were pretty much just sleeping, doing nothing. But they had all these propaganda signs up in English for, I assume, people like me who were visiting. Because otherwise, why would they they'd be up in English? On the way back, same thing. My butt just keeps getting pounded by the backseat of this. It rains. We get stuck in the rain. You drive very quickly if you're on a motorcycle, except for your butt. And then if you've ever been in the bathtub too long and you know what happens to your skin and it gets all wrinkly, okay, my butt became that because it was all damp from the rain. So not only is it getting hammered, it's also all wrinkly and stuff. And I was in real pain. I'm like, dude, we, we got to stop. I, this really hurts. So we get off by the side of the road because my butt hurts so bad. And I should add to this day, I still have problems with my tailbone. Uh, it'll still flare up sometimes from this one day in Cambodia, but we're stopped and these guys pull up in a car and they're speaking Khmer. I have no idea what they're saying. Kind of casually, he's talking to the guys. He lifts the seat of the motorbike up and he puts his hand inside. Like they would have no idea what he's doing. He doesn't make a dramatic action. He just holds his hand there the whole time. I'm pretty sure the only reason they stopped the car is because he was with me. So he's with a white guy on the side of the road and it's, it's after dark at this point. Eventually they move along and he waits a little bit, puts the seat down. He says, get on the bike. We're going. I don't get too freaked out in situations like that because most situations like that usually don't, don't escalate. And uh, the two guys that pulled over were both kind of older. I think we both could have taken them uh, even if there was no gun involved, but no, I didn't. I, I, I really didn't think anything was happening. I didn't feel like really super frightened. I mean, anxious, yes, but not really scared. I was like, uh-oh. And we were kind of over in the side of the road. I was kind of standing in a ditch. So if something did hit the fan, I was prepared to like maybe run into the woods or something. Since then, the Cambodian government has invested in a paved road. From what I've been told, I haven't confirmed it, from Siem Reap to Previer. So you can easily go there on a day trip now in a coach bus. And the camera bag I had with me on that day was so full of dirt that even after, I eventually just like gave them the bag to my mom to sell in a garage sale. And there was still Cambodia all over it. Being constantly on the move means that you are always putting your body through extreme experiences that often aren't comfortable. But even though Gary knows how painful travel actually is, he knows that it's worth it. I think that you don't really appreciate how big the world is until you actually go out and see it. And, you know, you can, you can read books and stuff and guidebooks and hatch all these plans of the places you want to go. But travel to me is always first and foremost about learning. 
because every day is different and there's always new things you're learning, whether they are big or small, whether it's a big chunk of history or whether it's just a small custom or whether it's how the light switches are different or the toilet flush is different or these small things that most people would never tell you about that you, you notice when you visit places. And, and that's really why I enjoy doing it. There is a high cost of doing this, however, and the cost is not necessarily one of money. After I came back uh, to Minneapolis, which is where I lived before I started traveling, you know, and all the friends I had had either gone somewhere else or they got married and had kids. And basically they're just doing stuff with their life now. Right. And, and I was out seeing the world and you come back and you can't just start it again. It was weird because all the stuff I put in storage, I'm taking it out of these boxes. And it was literally like it was put on pause for 10 years. All my dishes are still there. All my clothes are still there. Same condition. It's all just there. And it was kind of surreal. And, and time kind of passes. So I've been able to do and see more than most of our species that has ever lived, right? I'm not talking about people in America or the world today. I'm talking about ever, who have ever walked the earth. I, I've seen more of it. I've done more things. But that comes at a cost. You know, I don't have a family. I don't have a wife and kids. So yeah, there are, uh, there are trade-offs and costs that are made. Was it worth it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, I could have gotten married before I, I hatched this idea. And the reason I didn't is because I'm like, yeah, this happens. We'll just end up getting divorced. <laughs> there's no point in that. Uh, everything I've done can never be taken away from me. This is all stuff that can never, you know, even when I was thinking about like, how can I make this as a business? I realized the investment of travel, unlike any other business that you invest in, cannot be repossessed. No bank is ever going to come and, and like take away your memories. Gary is right. No one can take these moments away from you. Even if sometimes you wish the moment was over. We walk by cars and tractor trailers stuck on the road, unable to turn around. Their goods begin stewing in the desert heat. As the three of us walked up, we see a crowd of men blocking the road, and they've put large rocks down on the pavement to prevent cars from driving towards them. They held signs with pictures of men and words on them. Something about injustice and the government, but I, I, don't, I wasn't sure. But for a protest, it was eerily quiet. Some of the men stared at me. I made a peace sign with my hands. A few of them gave it back, but no smiles accompanied. Stray dogs circled the area. There were taxis waiting on the other side, sitting like vultures, patiently waiting for people to cave and cross. The three of us walked back to the bus, and the driver opened up the baggage compartment for us to sit in, shading us from the blistering sun, but gave us an alternative spot to sit instead of inside of the bus, which was quickly turning into a sauna. The bus driver turned to Allison and said that they might open the road up for people to pass in about two hours. So we waited. We gnawed on sticks of sugarcane with the bus driver and played card games. And then two hours came 
and went. We waited another two hours, and then another two. We became acutely aware of how slowly the sun moves in the sky. I kept it to myself, but I was starting to get a little heated. I stared at John, pontificate down to Allison about the future of cryptocurrency. God, I don't like you. What a moment I was boiling in, emotionally and physically. I mean, who's better than to be stuck with on a highway than your ex, who's already a form of psychological torture? I didn't know what the murder laws were in Mexico, but it would be easy to dump his body in the desert, have it be picked at by vultures as I lived off the rest of my days tanning on the beaches of Puerto Escondido. I didn't need to go back to America if that meant he didn't either. But fortunately, because we were around other people, we didn't have to interact much. So I kept my macabre thoughts to myself. Every few hours was interrupted with a false hope that the protest would break and let people pass. But each promise was broken. The only thing that kept us entertained was watching the slow march of street vendors who had caught wind of the protests and all of the travelers who were stuck and stranded on the highway. The vendors from Santa Maria took their carts and pushed them down the highway selling coconut water, empanadas, sugarcane, and chips. The hustle in Mexico is like no other. John, Allison, and I each grabbed snacks and water to share with the small amount of money we had. As the sun began to creep closer to the ocean, the three of us had to start thinking about where to spend the night. Around 8 o'clock at night, the bus driver decided to turn back to the town and regroup. And we had no other option. So the three of us hopped on the bus. We had no place to stay, no internet, no knowledge of this town. And my body was so tired and I just lost all sense of time. It reminded me of the long drives I would take on the Taconic State Parkway from my college to home. After a certain point in your travels, time starts to bleed together, like you're stuck in a Salvador Dali painting. The idea of a Monday starts to sound a little silly. Laura knows that feeling a little too well. She has a podcast, Women on the Road, which interviews women who live out of their vans and turn road trips into a lifestyle. She currently lives out of her self-made van, and she says that after being on the road for a while, her sense of time becomes warped when she's in transit for so long. It's interesting because traveling on the road, I was in a camper van full-time for almost two years, and I travel part-time in a camper now. And for me, being in transit was a huge part of being able to develop myself creatively. What I wasn't expecting from that was this very strange feeling of time traveling. So I still get some pretty major deja vu all the time when I travel around now, having been on the road full time where my former partner and I were traveling together and we would roll up somewhere in the middle of the night. It was pretty dark and we'd pull up, had never been on these highways before, had never been maybe in these states before, would be, you know, parked in a parking lot for the night and get up in the morning and go and circle back four months after the fact. We would end up in the same spot, but 
we wouldn't really know it until later. So I've had moments where I've woken up in my van in the morning, gotten out, looked around and said, this place looks really familiar. And then hours later, I realized, oh, we slept here once. We were actually here. We just came in the parking lot from a different side or we were there at night and now we're here during the day. And so now we see things differently. And this actually happened recently when I was traveling um, with some friends and my current partner and we were taking the main road. It's called the Million Dollar Highway and it runs through Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which is such a beautiful drive. We were driving it, I believe going south and the last time I drove it, I was going north. And so I had this whole feeling of familiarity while we were driving and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And then finally we hit a couple of turns and a couple little landmarks. And I was like, oh, all the memories came flooding back. And I was like, I've been here before. I was here earlier this year. I don't remember why, but I know that I was here before. And I was just driving the road the opposite way. And so it's been really cool to experience the world and the States through that form of road travel, because it's been so ongoing that Sometimes I don't remember exactly where I've been, but I know that I was there and I love that feeling when it comes up. It feels kind of dreamlike, to be honest. And when you travel that often, it's easy to feel like you're going a lot of places or you're doing a lot of things. But at the end of the day, like only the big memories are going to stand out of like, I went and saw this landmark or I was on this road or I had this travel goal and I did this or I saw every state. But it's really the little moments that stick out more than anything. And I think that's what's cool about being in transition all the time is that you don't really know what little moments are going to be the big moments until they've happened. It's hard to see them when they're actually there. It's not a vista that you go to that you planned to get there for. It's driving down some road and seeing the sunset sweep through on just an average Tuesday. And you're like, oh, you know, that's beautiful. And looking back, maybe those are the moments that you remember the most. Um, Whereas I think, yeah, when we have our lives very regulated and structured, we don't get a lot of surprise. It is those big moments that we create for ourselves or that do happen upon us that end up being the big moments. And it's harder to find those little moments because we're not exposing ourselves to a lot of new things. But being in transition, you're continually exposing yourself to new things that you're then impacted by in some way. It's not just our brains that are affected by this constant change of environments. It's also our bodies. We need time to adapt to the switching of elevations, air qualities, or even brightness of the sun. Our cells can be sensitive to new surroundings. Always being on the move is exciting and exhausting at the same time. So there are some very big realities of just changing elevations and changing climates that your body adapts to continually. And sometimes it can feel like you're changing seasons really fast too, depending on how far, how fast you're going. So going from, you know, a wet region like the Northwest to a really dry one, like the Southwest, it dries out your body. You know, my, I would always joke that I needed to have chapstick on hand at all times. And whenever I was changing climates, your body starts drying out because it's not used to that my hair would change, like it would become brittle or whatever. So you're starting to notice all these things about your body. And sometimes, yeah, with different elevations, you know, I love to go on trail runs or just runs in general. And so you'd sometimes forget that you'd climbed in your vehicle 4,000 feet and you get out the next morning and go for a run. And you're like, 
why am I so exhausted? And then you realize, oh, my body isn't adapted to this elevation yet. And that's really strange because I just put myself right up here. You know, it, you can travel like that in a plane too, but you're a little bit more aware of it because everyone's very focused on their destination and where they're going when they get into a plane. When you get into a car and you have no set agenda, you might not be as aware of that or have it be top of mind. When I'm in a constant state of transition, I try my best to stay super hydrated. It's hard when you're driving, especially by yourself, to stay hydrated because you just can forget easily. And if you're trying to make a lot of distance, then you don't want to stop to go to the bathroom all the time. But it's really important just for your body to stay hydrated. I also am really generous to myself when it comes to sleep when I need to. So the vans that I travel in have blackout curtains, which keeps things pretty dark. And so that allows me to sleep a little bit later during the day if, let's say, I drove really late into the night. And then staying warm is super important too, because things change all the time when you're traveling, you know, into different climates. And so even the desert, you know, the desert gets super cold at night, even though it's beautiful and clear out, it is, you know, down into the twenties, teens, sometimes single digits. So just having the right blankets, or I used to have like a car, you know, one of the car plug operated electric blankets. And that was so cool. And you could set them on timers for like 30 to 45 minutes. And it's like a one person size blanket. So super small, not, you know, it's easy to pack down. And they came in really funky patterns, like some really old timey flannel type pattern, <laughs> but, but they kept me super warm. So I'd usually layer that into my bed and turn that on as I was going to sleep or before I got into bed. And that would help a lot too, to warm up the mattress. Cause when you're in a cold camper, guess what? The mattress is also cold and sometimes hard until you warm it up. <laughs> so just little things like that to try to make my world feel more homey, no matter where I was, was really important. The story of the American road trip is quite glorified. So I asked her why she thinks that is. I think that the reason that people are drawn to road travel in the States is because we have a lot of natural wonders that we've preserved all throughout the States. And we have a lot of really major roadways that allow us to get there. And there's such a vast open space to explore that not a lot of other countries have because their size is much smaller or even countries that are larger like Australia, there aren't as many roads. And so while road tripping is also popular in places like Australia, there just aren't as many roads to go travel. And so I think while you can go see a lot of things if you get out of your car, there's so much that you can see from your car in the United States that makes people say, I want to go on a road trip. And all the different communities in between too, there are so many different flavors of culture in the States and food and music and people and, you know, ways of talking. Slang is different. Accents are different. And now we are becoming more culturally diverse in a bigger way. So, you know, you get even not just different accents, but different languages. And so I do think there's something really appealing about that too, for folks who want to really understand what it's like and not have to get a passport to go to all these different places. They can literally just go in their car, which is pretty cool. Now, when we think of stories about people just getting in their car and going, it's typically a man in the driver's seat. Women aren't always expected to be behind the wheel, let alone under it. I asked Laura what it was like being a woman who travels on the road. 
There is something different about traveling as a female versus traveling as a male. And this also isn't taking into account just how people identify. This is a super heterosexual perspective. But that said, in talking to a lot of women who travel on the road and in traveling on the road as a female myself, there is a big difference. I think probably the biggest difference comes from people who are questioning why you're out there and if you built your vehicle yourself and if you're afraid. Those are usually the three biggest questions that I've gotten or that people who I've talked to who are female get a lot. And I think safety is probably the one that comes up the most just because people assume, rightfully so, unfortunately, that women are going to be more likely to be targets of some type of assault or theft or anything like that when they're traveling. And um, there are a lot of different thoughts around that, especially in the women on the road community. It's something we talk about a lot. How do different people address safety? You know, how do people even feel about being asked that question so often? But I don't think that men, I could be wrong, but I don't think that men get that question nearly as often. And the other ones are interesting, like women who build out their campers or work on their vehicles in any capacity, change their oil, fix a flat tire, you know, whatever the case is, they get a lot of scrutiny and criticism for doing so. Or, you know, just the questioning of, oh, you built this yourself. Oh, you worked on this yourself. I've gotten that. In fact, I've even been traveling on the road and had someone want to talk about my van with me and my male partner was there and they only wanted to ask him questions and he actually had nothing to do with my build. And so he just kept saying, dude, this is her van. I'm just traveling with her. I actually didn't do anything to this vehicle. I'm just riding with her. And still this man continued to ask him questions about my vehicle when I was standing right there. So there's a lot of undermining that happens when women travel. And so I do think it's important for females to find community in that because you're not alone. And also it, it's not, it's not real. You know, these are real questions that people are asking, but it's not a reflection of who you are or anything like that. So there's this other layer that I do think women deal with when they travel that men probably typically don't deal with. I wondered what microaggressions she's had to drive through as she makes stops from state to state. Oh, yeah, I get that a lot. I think some of the biggest things are just like how to read maps or where to go for certain things. And, you know, I know women who are more actively working on their cars, especially in like gas station parking lots, will get a lot of mansplaining to them from other men. I actually haven't been caught with like, you know, working on my vehicle or anything like that in a gas station parking lot. So I haven't encountered that yet, though that could very well happen at any point in time. But yeah, usually it's a lot of like where to go to get gas or how to read a map. And there's one thing for people trying to be helpful, especially locals. I so appreciate people wanting to like look out for you and help give you some good tips on where to find things like that's great. But most people who are out traveling in their vehicle, especially by themselves, they didn't get where they are if they didn't know how to read a map. That's been my biggest learning from the Women on the Road podcast is that women are super, super creative and capable. And we've created so many different ways to do road travel that you really can't go wrong. You just have to try. But Laura seems to have no plans of stopping her van life because an object in motion stays in motion. We finally arrive at the bus stop. The three of us get off and notice that there's a group of English speakers chatting furiously to each other. We go up to them and ask if they had any information about the protest. 
Oh my God, we've been waiting for hours, said an older woman. Her outfit looked like she had rummaged through Jane Goodall's wardrobe, and her husband was to match. Let's call them Jane and Hugo for fun. We're trying to get to Puerto Escondido, but have been coming up against protests all over the place, said a brown-haired girl named Tara. And we learned that her and her friend Emmy were also from Portland. Before this, said Emmy, we had to walk through a protest and were chased by stray dogs. But we haven't been to the protest here yet. We've been waiting for hours for the bus. An Australian woman, Samantha, was keeping quiet to herself. She was traveling alone, headed to a lagoon somewhere before the ocean. All eight of us were headed in the same direction, but stranded nonetheless. We looked to each other for answer or direction, knowing that no one had a solution more than what was already said. But as uncertain as all of this was, I never felt frustrated. And given the blowout breakup John and I had gone through, we were both eerily calm towards each other. Sure, we were feverish, but planning the next step helped us not focus on the flaws of each other. The bus driver came up to us and continued to feed us the promise that the protest might break up during the night. We could sleep on the bus just in case it went through. So we repeated the ritual from the night before. We got onto a bus and I got a window seat. Allison sat in the seats ahead of John and I. We grabbed all the softer items from our bags to create a makeshift nest for the night and waited for a miracle. We're gonna take a quick pit stop at a petrol station. We're gonna stretch our legs, grab some snacks, and fill up our tank before we finish the end of this journey. We'll hear from Jen from Sidewalk Safari about how these unsuspecting stops can be more than just a place to recharge. I'm an American expat living in Dublin, Ireland. I have to say, I love a good road trip, especially in Ireland. The M7 motorway is the main road between Dublin and Limerick and cuts right across the Emerald Isle from east to west. The M7 is one of nearly two equidistant ways of getting from Dublin to the famous Cliffs of Moher in County Clare. Did you know that former U.S. President Barack Obama is Irish? He has Irish roots and Monegal, a small village just off of the M7 in County Offaly, is President Obama's ancestral home. Irish people are fascinated by President Obama, and his visit to Ireland in 2011 was both well-received and widely followed. Obama visited Monegal on this visit and famously downed a pint of Guinness while visiting the small town. Today you'll find something of a memorial to President Obama along the M7 highway, but it's not the usual stone and granite affair that you might expect. To commemorate the presidential visit, the Barack Obama Plaza was built. In other countries, you might call it a rest area or a truck stop, but here the plaza is a mark of history. Barack Obama Plaza is conveniently located about halfway between Dublin and the Cliffs of Moher and is a great place to stop and stretch your legs on the drive. You'll find the usual fast food, snacks, and coffee, of course, but there's more. The walls are covered with smiling, waving pictures of Barack and Michelle Obama. Wander upstairs to the Visitor Center, which showcases the history of Irish emigration across the world. Trace the journey of Falmouth Kearney, the third great-grandfather of Barack Obama himself. I definitely count Barack Obama Plaza in Monegal among my top road trip surprises of all time. Check it out if you're traveling around Ireland. Now 
Now at this point in the story, I know I'm supposed to say it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, but sometimes we just want to fucking get there. Ironically, the most frustrating part about traveling is often the travel itself. Sleeping in airports, being stranded at bus stations, or left waiting for a car that never comes. Megan from Why Wait to See the World has decided to relive her most traumatizing travel story of trying to get home. Pro tip, pack some snacks right now because we don't know when the next rest stop will be. So I have this pact with my mom that I will never miss a Christmas again. I missed one when I was living in Thailand. And ever since then, she's like, I just want you kids home for Christmas. Like, please. One October, Megan was backpacking through Southeast Asia, the farthest place in the world from her home in upstate New York, without entering the stratosphere. But as her travels crept into American winter, she needed to keep that promise to her mom about never missing a Christmas. So she booked a ticket home. So I was on the island of Copenhagen on December 22nd, and I needed to be home by Christmas, which is the 25th. So I had planned on being home by like, I think it was like 9 a.m. on the 24th, like Christmas Eve. Like leaving Thailand on the 22nd got me to New York on the 24th. I had to take a ferry from Copenhagen to the mainland, which is like a good eight, 10 hours, something ridiculous. (laughs) And then I took a bus from that port to Krabi, which is like two or three hours. Krabi, I took a flight to Bangkok, which is, I don't know, like an hour. I had an overnight in the Bangkok airport because I had about an eight-hour layover. And if you've ever been to Bangkok, you know it takes like three hours to leave the airport. So I was like, I'll just sleep here, whatever. But they kick you out of like the main gate. So I was like in that like weird waiting zone before you like actually go through security. So like there's no good sleeping options. So I was sleeping there for the night. This time I went from, I was going from Bangkok to Copenhagen and it was supposed to be a 13 hour flight, but because of trade winds, it ended up being 17 hours and I was supposed to have like a five hour layover. So by the time we landed, I had about 20 minutes to get to my connection. So like I thought then I could, you know, change my clothes, brush my teeth, like during this layover, like get some food, like, you know, relax because make myself a human again and they had completely run out of food on this flight by the time we landed they had budgeted for 13 hours not 17 and and I'm gluten-free so that obviously always adds challenges like when flying and all I literally had six seven dollar chocolate bars (laughs) I was so hungry and there was no food left that was the only thing I could eat. So when we landed, I had 20 minutes. I don't know if you've ever been to the Copenhagen airport, but it's very compartmentalized. Like you have to go through a room and then a room and a room and they have security. Like I had to go through like a bag scanner in between flights. I was like, there's no way my check bag is going to make it, but okay, we'll just go for it. They're trying to rush us through. They were holding the plane for us. So like I just sent in a 17 hour flight and I was getting on like another like eight hour flight to New York rushed through, made it, got on that flight, landed me in New York on the 23rd of December at like 10.30 at night. And so she makes it to America. And fortunately, the state that her family lives in. But a misconception about New York is that it isn't just a city. It's a whole damn state. Once Megan landed, she was still 300 miles away from home. Closer but not close enough. 
From New York, it would have taken her a hundred hours to walk home. And from the looks of Port Authority, the day before Christmas, that idea started to look like a viable option. And I had booked a bus from New York City to Rochester, New York, which is an eight-hour bus ride. That was supposed to leave at like 1.30 in the morning from the Port Authority. And I had been traveling for almost 30 hours at this point. No, way more than that. I don't know. I can't even do the math. I tried to do the math after the fact, and I was like, I can't even. My brain doesn't work. I get to the Port Authority, and there's two terminals where all the buses leave from. Like, And so I was like, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is a nightmare. It is not well marked. You cannot figure it. You need to know where you're going because it's impossible to figure it out in advance. I tried to read the board. Nothing's making sense because Rochester is like a middle stop. It's not like an end point. So unless I knew where the end points were, I was screwed. And so I went up and asked the guy and I was like, you know, like I'm trying to go here. He's like, oh, you're going there? Like, what time's your bus? And I was like 1.30. And he's like, girl, it's on the other terminal. You better run. And I was like, oh my God. I might like double turtling again, you know, like posted it to the other side of the terminal. And I get there and I walk all the way around. I'm like sweating, you know, profusely, haven't brushed my teeth in at least like 36 hours. Like, you know, I've lived off of chocolate bars and chips. So my brain is on like mush. And I'm looking around, can't find anywhere that would make sense for Rochester to be on the route. So I like find a somewhat, there's nobody to help you. So I like find like a baggage guy. And I was like, do you know where this is? And he said, oh, girl, like, why are you in this terminal? It's in the other terminal. Like, what time's your bus? Like, you better run. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? (laughs) I think that New York City is the world's epicenter because it's so damn hard to leave it, which is why there's too many people and terrible transportation. Book it all the way back, get there at, like, 125, figure out, like, which, find the actual gate. I kid you not, it's one bus. And there's about 500 people lined up for this one bus. Now, I have done this same trip that Megan has taken, leave Port Authority a few days before Christmas, and I don't think that she's exaggerating. And I'm like, hmm, this doesn't seem right. So apparently, Greyhound just overbooks, and then they just add extra buses. So there's like a mob. It's not a line. It's a mob of people that are just waiting to get on this bus route. So they just keep bringing buses. So you're not actually assigned to a bus. You're assigned to like a route and then they just get you on whatever one. So I'm just like watching this situation. Like this doesn't seem like it's going to work. And I looked up like the train schedule. I looked up all these different options and like nothing would really get me there at like a feasible time. And I'm like, how does everybody else get this? And I don't like I'm a season traveler. I should know what I'm doing. Like, why is this so difficult? Like, and then I ended up like, talking to a couple people and we all figure out that we're all going to Rochester and we put a cap on it. We were like, okay, if we don't all get on a bus by 6am, we're going to rent a car and drive. Cause I knew I couldn't do it like by myself. I couldn't drive eight hours by myself. Like my brain was mush. Like there's no way. And it was about, I think it was like five fifteen, five thirty in the morning. Mind you, my bus was supposed to leave four hours prior to that. I'd been standing there for fucking four hours all of a sudden like magically like I just like slink onto a bus so like I literally made it onto a bus at like 5 30 so like I found a window seat shoved all my crap got my headphones in got literally an iMac out or earplugs I don't know which one I did and like 
I had a hoodie on and like 12 layers because I get so cold in public transportation. And I have like a, a sari, like a, a scarf sari thing. So I literally like on the bus, like nestled into my little window seat, got my, my head pillow, like put that on, like went like this, shoved things here, put this here, put my hood up, put my sari like over the top of me. <laughs> you couldn't see any ounce of my skin. And I just like immediately fell asleep. I was asleep by the time the bus even started moving. Like I was out. I've never fallen asleep that quickly in public transportation before. And I don't know. I just, I don't know if the bus like stopped suddenly or what it was just something like jolted me kind of awake at one point. And so I just was like, okay, maybe I should like see where we are. <laughs> I don't like this stop. <laughs> that would be the ultimate icing on the cake. So like, yeah, like pulled my stuff back. The guy sitting next to me is a kid I graduated high school with. He had his headphones in and was like, just like playing on his phone or like on his laptop. And I just like kept looking and I just like kept side-eyeing him like, I feel like I know him, but I couldn't figure out if, like, my brain could be trusted at that point. Like, like is it actually what I think it is? I don't know. And I was like, finally, I was like, well, we're sitting next to each other. So this would be hella weird if I don't actually say something. And I, like, like, Dennis? Is that you? <laughs> and we both, like, just stared at each other for a second. Then he, like, had recognition. Cause I feel like I looked exactly the same from high school. So he's like, I had no idea that was you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how long have we been sitting next to each other? He's like, like four hours. <laughs> and so I make it through Rochester at about, I think it's like 3.30 in the afternoon. And I was supposed to be there at like eight in the morning. Like went to the family Christmas Eve party, like asleep on the couch essentially. And then, but I made it home for Christmas. <laughs> We could do the math about how many hours Megan was in transit, but we're all really tired. When you've been traveling for so long, you get to this dazed point where time doesn't exist. The only way you can psychologically handle the insanity is counting one stop at a time. I have one of those sleeps where you know you didn't really fall asleep. Maybe I dipped into a lower REM cycle, but nothing soothing. No metaphors about babies here. My body had been waiting for the rumbling and the jerk backwards of the bus all night. A few minutes later, Allison wakes up, crust in her eyes and asks, are we there? Which breaks my heart because I know that we haven't moved at all. She had awoken to a nightmare. Our other friends began to rouse. We all grabbed our backpacks and haggardly got off the bus. Our circle of eight started hatching a game plan. The bus is a dead end, said Hugo. Then Allison said, well, people were walking across the protest yesterday to get taxis on the other side. Emmy replied, I'm going to see if any locals have a truck big enough to bring us to the protests. She had the best Spanish out of all of us. Then after 45 minutes of negotiating and waiting for a truck, we were at another dead end. Ugh, okay, what if we got cabs to as close as we could and then walked across, said John. But what if there are no cars on the other side, asked Samantha. Well, it's the best we can do. 
Let's not tell the cabs where we're going until we get into the car, Jane replied. We then split into two groups. Alice and John and I were in one cab, and everyone else got into the other. I wanted Allison to feel like she was part of our adventure. It's so interesting how quickly we can become tribal. Two cabs finally accepted our motley crew, and we made our way up the same curves from the day before, a road that I wish I wasn't so familiar with. The cabs dropped us off about a mile away from the protest, so they had room to turn around. The road was still lined with tractor trailers and cars that had been slept in overnight. They were fermenting like food that had sat out from a party the night before. We hopped out into the blazing Mexican morning and joined the others. Samantha was gone. She decided to make a different journey, and our lines were no longer crossing. It was down to seven. We were dropped off at the bottom of a hill, and I feel the full weight of my backpack as we start making the mile trek down towards the border pass, which is what we were calling it. I walked besides Hugo as we made our pilgrimage to the protests. He looked like what Indiana Jones would have been like if he got married and stuck to his studies for 40 years. We began to sweat from the sun, which was making its way closer to the top of the sky. But it didn't matter at that point because we were beyond huggable. At the crest, we had this expansive view of the landscape. The protests stationed between the rocky, dusty hills to our right and the serene ocean to our left. The protest was larger now, but still quiet. No signs of violence yet. But we didn't know what they did to passerbys, especially gringos. As the protests come clearer into focus, Hugo begins to tell me, well, this is nothing. I can't wait to have the hindsight of the elderly, I thought. I used to be an archaeologist, he said. And back in the 70s, I was working in Iran and was in Tehran when followers of Amman began to protest. Me and a few of my American counterparts were in the Canadian embassy and escaped before things got really bad. Wait a minute, that sounds familiar. What? Hugo, were you in the... Were you in the Iranian hostage crisis? But by the time he started going into the details, we were at the border. No uproar, no shouting, still pretty quiet. The protesters saw us go by and stared at us, stoically, like paintings whose eyes follow you. I gave them a peace sign, and some of them raised their hands and splayed their fingers back. No smiles. I wouldn't be happy to be here either. Once we crossed, we found taxis immediately. Drivers hopped out of their cars and waved towards us. We broke up into the same groups and hopped into taxis. Allison negotiated with the driver to take us to the next bus stop, about 40 minutes away. He would take whatever money was in our wallets. After a ride through swamps, jungle, and desert, we finally made it to the bus stop. It was still a three-hour trek to the beach. We parted ways with the Canadians, who were going on a slightly different route. It was like watching an episode of Game of Thrones. As soon as I was getting to know someone, they left the story. Now it was down to five. As we waited for the last bus, we killed time by talking about our common denominator of the Pacific Northwest. We nourished each other on stories about our favorite restaurants, meals, and markets as we waited. It was all I could do to keep sane. 
This trip felt like a movie that wouldn't buffer. Jesus, this is taking forever. My impatience starts stinging like a beetle bite. I just wanted to fucking get there. I can't wait anymore. This is I just want to fucking get there. Insane. <gasps> and finally, 45 minutes late, the bus arrives. I didn't have the energy to calculate how long of a journey this had taken us. I was amazed. I hadn't lost all of my reason yet. I crawled onto the bus, got a window seat, and peered out at the wild around me. Palm trees, dense jungle, pink azaleas lined our road. Ten minutes, or two hours later, I'm awoken by the smell of salt water. We made it. Our group got out and promised to keep in touch. We wrote down each other's contact info, but none of us had service or put in the extra effort to find each other once we did. John and I hopped into a cab and I stared out the window thinking about that cliche travel line. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. But I fucking got it. It's not about the insane views you have. It's about everything you do to get there, to satisfy that travel itch. If I was told that I would someday be stuck on a highway in Western Mexico, baking in the sun like a tamale next to my pugnacious ex, I would have asked you to pass me the cyanide. But it's like I needed it. Because it's about the setbacks, the mishaps, the delays, rerouting, and all of the wonderful and weird people you meet along the way. Being in transit is like feeling a growing pain. It hurts, but you know you're getting bigger somehow. The cab pulls up to our little hut on the beach, underneath a coconut tree, full of fruit. The sun was setting, burning the horizon with orange and red stripes. It was such an idyllic picture that it would quickly become an overused stock photo. John and I were running distance to the beach, which is exactly what we did. We dropped off our things, dripped off all of our clothes, put on bathing suits, and sprinted towards the ocean. The feeling of cold water cutting into the layers of grime, bus air, and sweat was the most refreshing feeling I have ever felt. I dunk my head under and felt reborn. I turned upwards onto my back, facing the sky and feeling the water undulate under me. After all that moving, it felt good to be still. Now that we've been on the road for a while, we're going to bump up against some bigger issues. On our next episode, we're worried. We will talk to travelers who have experienced those unsettling moments that we don't know how we're gonna get out of. Drug busts, sketchy drinks, attacked by animals. We will talk to those who have gone through the worst. So hopefully your travels will be safer make sure you have some protective gear on because we don't know what's about to get in our way. Next time on Strangers Abroad.